530. I'd like to call to order the January 18th meeting of the City of Palm Coast Planning and Land Development Regulation Board. If you would, please rise and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge Thank you. Irene, would you please call the roll? Yes, I will, Mr. Chair. Mr. Smith? Here. Mr. Albano? Here. Ms. Shank? Here. Mr. Lemon? Here. Mr. Hilton? Here. Ms. Nicholson? Here. Mrs. Lucas? Here. Mr. Gross? Here. Mr. Bush is excused. We do have a quorum. Thank you. Uh, just before we start, I'd like to introduce uh, Larry Gross, who is a sworn in I guess today as an alternate member so welcome welcome so we have mrs. Lucas who is joining us tonight to, to fill in for the the absent member so welcome back welcome back <laughs> yes. see everyone our, our first order of business is approval of the minutes from October 19th are there any questions or corrections if not is there a motion to approve I'll make a motion. Is there a second? Second. Irene, would you call the roll? Mr. Lemon. Yes. Mr. Albano. Yes. Ms. Nicholson. Yes. Mr. Hilton. Yes. Mrs. Lucas. Yes. Ms. Shank. Yes. Mr. Smith. Yes. The motion carries seven to zero. Thank you. Item number two is a special exception for Horizon Self Storage. It's application 5293. Mr. Tyner. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Ray Tyner, De uh, Deputy Chief Development Officer. Uh, our first item is the uh, special exception for self-storage. It's uh, located in our Commercial 2 Zoning District, which requires a, uh, a special exception for uh, Planning Board to ultimately make a decision. Our planner, uh, Estelle Lenz, will have the uh, staff presentation. And the applicant is also here. Hi, good evening, Mr. Chairman and members of the board, Estelle, city planner. This is a special exception for Horizon self-storage. The owner of the property is Horizon Real Estate Fund, LP. There's, um, it it's conflicts with the staff report and the application because they just close on the property on December 9th. So that shows a different owner of B&B Holdings of Palm Coast. But we do have a copy of the deed and the owner is just so that you, if you see the conflict, that's, that's the explanation. The size of the property is 7.06 acres. It's located approximately 1.2 miles north of Matanzas Woods Parkway. And the request is for special exception to allow many warehouses, office warehouses, and or self-storage in the commercial, general commercial COM2 zoning district. This is a closer in aerial. It shows the site here outlined in red. It's on US uh, Highway 1, and it is across the street from the Sawmill Creek subdivision. So it's a good location to serve that uh, subdivision and the other ones along US 1. The future land use map amendment shows the property as being mixed use. To the north, we have city greenbelt. To the east and south is county agricultural, agricultural and timberlands. And across US 1, we have the um, Palm Coast Park DRI mixed use land use. 
Uh, the zoning of the property is commercial two, COM two. To the north, again, we have the estate zoning, city estate zoning, which is a residential zoning. To the south and east, we have county agriculture, and to the west across US-1 is the Palm Coast Park MPD. The conceptual site plan shows six buildings. We've got perimeter buildings and a large one um, on the western half of the site, providing 637 indoor storage units. They're proposing 40 outdoor storage units, and then on the east side of the portion of the site is a large stormwater pond. This slide shows it's a little bit closer in aerial. Um, it shows that the city has the estate zoning to the north and the county property to the east is actually county agriculture with a small access strip to get back to it. Because of the proximity to the residential city zoning to the north and the residential use to the east, one of the conditions that staff is recommending um, the site be conditioned on if approved uh, would be to condition the commercial zoning against residential uses, which would be a D, E, or F landscape buffer, a D buffer being a 10-foot buffer with an 8-foot wall, an F buffer being a 15-foot a, a buffer with an 8-foot fence, and or an E buffer, which would be a 20-foot landscape buffer, um, and the landscaping would have to reach an opacity of 80% within two years. This is the architectural rendering of the front of the site, uh, the west side facing US-1. And this shows the elevations. I know the applicant handed them out so you could see them larger, but this is the west side uh, uh, rendering again facing US-1, the front of the development. This is the south would be facing the county agricultural zoning. And the east side would be facing the rear, facing the residential use that's on the county property. And then the north they're proposing facing the city estate zoning. And again, that would require the buffering that I mentioned. The five review criteria from section 2.05.05 of the land development code is A, must not be in conflict or contrary to the public interest. The proposed self-storage facility with indoor storage units and outdoor boat and RV spaces, storage spaces, is not in conflict with or contrary to the public interest. The site is located along US Highway 1, which has a mix of uses, including commercial, industrial, and residential, and is across US Highway 1 from the Sawmill Creek Residential Subdivision, which is uh, platted for 259 single-family residential lots. Sawmill Creek does have, <clears throat> excuse me, substantial landscaping, uh, a substantial landscape buffer along US-1. And the commercial two zoning district is intended to provide sufficient areas for general commercial and office uses to meet community-wide demand for retail, services, businesses, and employment opportunities. The site is well situated to serve the surrounding residential communities. B, must be consistent with the provisions of the Land Development Code and the Comprehensive Plan. And this request will be consistent with all applicable portions of the Land Development Code and the Comprehensive Plan. A selection of goals, policies, and objectives from the Comp Plan are provided in the staff report. C, must not impose a significant liability or hardship on the city. 
Should the applicant be granted a special exception as conditioned by staff, no significant financial liability or hardship will be created for the city. Water sewer and reclaimed water services are located on the west side of US Highway 1 and will be extended under the highway by the developer at their cost. The applicant's engineer submitted a trip generation comparison using the Institute of Transportation Engineers trip generation, whoops, uh, says tip generation, strip generation manual, which show that the proposed facility will only generate 145 average annual daily trips, including 15 p.m. peak hour trips. And this is compared to the intensity that the site would, um, would, uh, would provide if it was developed as a retail shopping center, that would be 3,426 3, daily trips and 259.5 p.m. peak hour trips. So this is a much less intense proposal. D, must not create an unreasonable hazard or nuisance or constitute a threat to the general health, welfare, or safety of the city's inhabitants. Approving a special exception for a self-storage facility with boat and RV parking, where the facility is well buffered, will not create an unreasonable hazard or nuisance or constitute a threat to the general health, welfare, or safety of the city's inhabitants. E, the proposed development must comply with all other applicable local, state, and federal laws, statutes, ordinances, regulations, or codes, and a technical site plan will need to be submitted by the applicant. Since the technical site plan will have six buildings totaling 98,400 square feet, it will be considered a tier two site plan that will be reviewed initially by staff, followed by review and determination by this board, by the Planning and Land Development Regulation Board. All businesses must comply with the requirements of the Land Development Code and all other applicable local, state, and federal laws, statutes, ordinances, regulations, and codes. And then this is the special exception analysis based on the Land Development Code section 2.07.03, which contains additional criteria for special exceptions. A is consistent with the specific requirements for that particular use as set forth in the Land Development Code. The proposed location will be on a site that will be developed under all applicable development standards of the Land Development Code, including specific standards for general commercial COM2 zoning the COM2 zoning district. Landscape standards shall meet or exceed as applicable the standards of Chapter 11, including Table 11-4, planting and maintenance requirements. Additional sections of the Land Development Code that address outdoor storage of boats and RVs include Section 5.04.10, which addresses boat and recreational vehicle commercial storage facilities and states where boats or recreational vehicles are commercially stored outside, they shall only be stored on pavement located behind buildings or preserved wooded areas. So they are generally hidden from the public rights of way unless specifically permitted by code. And 4.17.02 um, pertains to outdoor storage in commercial zoning districts and requires screening by a fence a wall or natural buffer and states that no items may be stored above the height of the screening and a technical site plan tier two would need to be submitted by the applicant. Uh, B meets the concurrency requirements of this land development code. The site will need to meet all applicable concurrency provisions in the land development code as it goes through the permitting process. And C is compatible with the surrounding neighborhoods and promotes the value of surrounding land, structures, or buildings. 
As conditioned staff's recommendation of approval, the proposed use will be compatible with existing and expected future uses of the neighboring area. The compatibility will be further reviewed under other factors including the architectural design and screening standards. Planning staff will ensure that the facility will meet these standards including staff special conditions when the technical site plan is reviewed. Uh, regarding public participation, the applicant met the 14-day requirement of sending certified mail to abutting property owners for tonight's um, public hearing. Uh, staff has not received any phone calls nor emails, neither in favor nor opposed to the request. The next steps for this project is it will return to the planning board as a technical site plan tier two. And in this way we can ensure and demonstrate to the board that uh, compliance with all the conditions of the special exception. The recommendation is that the planning, board, planning and land development regulation board determine this project is consistent with the city's comprehensive plan and land development code and approve application 5293 a special exception to allow mini warehouses, office storage, and self-storage in the COM2 zoning district, subject to the following conditions. One, a buffer providing approximately 80% opacity is required abutting the lands to the north and the east. This may be accomplished by providing a D, E, or F perimeter buffer as regulated in Table 11-6 of the Land Development Code. A wall or fence must be eight feet tall. Supplemental plantings may be required to obtain that opacity. Two, outdoor vehicle storage services are limited to operable boats, automobiles, pickups, vans, trailers, and recreational vehicles. Storage services shall not be provided for any heavy-duty trucks, semi-tractor trailers, dump trucks, full-size buses, shipping containers, or large construction equipment. Three, on-site boat and vehicle repair and maintenance is limited to washing, cleaning, detailing, tire changing, battery replacement, and other minor servicing and repairs. Recreational vehicles shall not be used for on-site residential use. Four, an on-site business for the sale, leasing, or rental of boats, recreational vehicles, trucks, trailers, or construction-related equipment is prohibited. Five, all vehicles and boats being stored shall be limited to the designated boat recreational storage spaces and shall not extend into or occur within the driving lanes or other non-designated storage areas. Six, a business shall, shall not use storage units for retail display and or sale of merchandise. Seven, no individual business signage shall be visible from the exterior of any storage unit except for the storage business itself. And eight, approval of a technical site plan, site development permit, and all other developmental permits required by the land development code. And the applicant's team is in attendance and will come forward. Thank you, Estelle. If you would, state your name and address for the record, please. Sure. Mr. Chair, board members, Rob Merrill with the Cobb Cole Law Firm on behalf of the applicant. Um, great job, Estelle. I, uh, Thank you. Hard act to follow, and there's not a lot for <laughs> me to say. I sense, I gave you guys the same pictures, I think, that she put up on the, um, on the screen. Didn't realize she was going to have all that for a PowerPoint. So uh, we're really here to answer any questions you guys have. I think if you've had experience with uh, both special exceptions, in this case, Ray, thank you. I mean, this is a, a permitted use in this zoning classification. There are certain criteria we have to meet. Estelle just did a great job with 
great precision and detail to tell you how each of those things have been met by this project. Uh, I think going above and beyond actually, um, the architecture that you see is, is not the old orange roll-up doors you used to see with self-storage that people didn't tend to like so much. So uh, this, is the, this is what you're seeing now in the marketplace for self-storage. The other things I'll say to you about self-storage, if you haven't experienced it or haven't had some of these come through the process, because I've done a lot of them, you know, they're very low traffic generators. As Estelle, you know, told you in the uh, ITE manual-based um, memo that was given, you know, this project probably produces less trips than a few houses would produce. Of course, in this zoning classification, you could do a lot more. Uh, they're basically a self-contained unit. So from a standpoint of uh, public safety, um, anybody who gets in or out has to go through the gate. So you see very few police and fire calls for self-storage facilities. Very little water and sewer impact. I think there are two toilets and two sinks in the entire facility. So these are very low impact. What you get is all positives. You get great boost to the tax base, which of course is is, uh, goes without saying with a project this size. Uh, what happens is when you see all these residents, uh, all these houses that are in the vicinity, all those people that have junk in their yards or out in their driveways or in their garages, put them in self-storage and everything cleans up. So you can probably you know, get rid of half of your code enforcement personnel because a lot of them are out there dealing with people who are putting junk in their yards. So you see this happen. If you guys haven't already, and I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry, but I think everything's positive that's coming before you, and if you have any questions for us, we're happy to answer them. Thank you. All right, we'll come back to the board. Uh, does the board have any questions of the staff or applicant? I have a question for staff. Maybe it's premature, but the drawings show that it's painted CMU, which is concrete block. Um, I don't know if we allow painted block, um, especially, you know, if you look to the north, there's going to be a several hundred long drive, you know, there's a driveway there now. And if they just paint concrete block, I, I don't think that's going to be very attractive to the neighbor to the north, and especially the east-facing wall, which is going to be the front yard of the person that lives behind us. So, I know the architectural required stone allow unfinished block. It allows split-face block, and, and it does require the um, massing and architectural articulation requirements as required by the Palm Coast Code. Every 50 feet has to have massing and and plus we're, we're requiring those buffers against the residential because it is just that narrow strip of access to the property to the rear and then we've got the estate zoning which is single family residential and maybe Mr. Merrill can add. Yeah, so what you see there is, the, the, it's not, this is not a good drawing, but the articulated elements that you see there have, have they're, they're articulated and sure. they have, I think, split face on them. So you have some, um, you know, texture changes along the way so it adds some architectural, you know, um, characteristics. And it's, by the way, it's going to be behind a bunch of pine trees and, and, and palmettos that are there now that are going to become, I think, a natural buffer. You'll never see the building, even though it's going to be nicely architecturally treated. So for what it's worth, we're going through site plan approval. If there are particular standards that are not allowed, we have to still comply with your code. So. Okay. Yes, any other questions? Yes, I was wondering what the range of rental is for these kinds of facilities. I know that there, are, there certainly are small ones, large ones, bigger ones, but yeah, they're all a, different sizes. A, a range. Uh, I'm going to have to get an expert up here for that one. Okay. There's somebody who's in the business. When do you guys want to come up and talk about pricing? <laughs> and what what prompted that was because you said we might be able to get rid of code enforcement personnel yeah. <laughs> because people will be able to take those things that are now stacked up in the yard 
and put them in storage. But how affordable that is that going to be? It's a great question for a homeowner. But, I mean, for retirees or whomever to be able to say, I have excess stuff I'm saving for the kids. I'd like to take it out of the backyard or the, or the attic and put it somewhere. What's the range? So you're going to get a perspective on that in just a second. What I'll say is my, my commentary about that was based on experience, seeing what happens when these facilities get built mm -hmm. and hearing from people that I work with in local government that actually had that effect. So that's sort of the reason why I said it, not because I know the business. So okay. with that. If yeah. you would, state your name and address yeah. for the record, too, please. Thank Dugan you. Gravage um, with Horizon, and my address is 3396 Manita Street, Bozeman, Montana. And to answer your question, ma'am, it's, it's very market-driven, which is why we, we like this market. We look at it as a per-square-foot cost, and we're looking at right around between $2 and $2.50 per square foot that we'll rent these for. And that's, that's fluctuating all the time based on, based on demand. Now, is that for the outdoor part too? or That would be just for, for the, the average of the indoor storage. Yeah. Is that a month or a year? Or? A month, a month. 250 a square foot per month for an average size storage unit for an average family could run about how much? I don't so, do math so in my head. But. What's the smallest compartment? Maybe a, t a 10 by 10 would be an easy math. And right. so looking about $220 per month. And that's what we're seeing in the market currently. Are, so. are these temperature controlled? Y yes, ma'am. The large building will be temperature controlled. Are the storage units temperature controlled? Yes. The individual ones, yes? Correct. So when you look at the site plan, you'll see that the, the building that runs the perimeter is the, is the climate controlled. And then you'll see that interior to that, there's places for boats and RVs to be stored in a covered area that's outside. Okay. So it's not climate controlled. Yeah, that wouldn't be necessary for that. No, right. But the unit's on the perimeter. Any other questions from the board? Yes, um, the question is for Estelle. The landscape buffer requirements, D, E, or F, is that going to be up to the applicant, or will code, code now you have me thinking about code enforcement. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> will the planning department be the one to determine whether it, if it will be D or a, D, the, E, or F? The, the code allows D, E, or F for commercial against residential zoning. So that staff's recommendation is that it could be D, E, or F. Of course, you know, the board could require, you know, one or the other as the condition rather than the option. Because the renderings that they provided reflect E, is it not? Is that correct? The, the renderings that they provided only show a 10-foot 10 10 foot buffer, which would be D with a wall. However, the, they did add on there D, E, or F. So when the site plan comes in, if it's going to be a fence, it would, they would have to show 15-foot landscape buffer. If they're going to just do the natural or you know the, the tall screen plantings, which would include natural plus supplementary plantings to reach that opacity, that would then become a 20-foot buffer, and they realize they will have to move the buildings. We have discussed that with them. So if I can just add, you know, one of the most important things, I think, with this site is that we definitely want to make sure there's an adequate buffer screening 
you know, the residential property to the north and the residential county, there's an existing house. So, you know, with this use, we want to have an appropriate screening. And you saw in, in Mrs. Lynn's um, uh, recommendation is that, you know, we want it the opacity to be about 80%, you know, within two years. So the screening is going to be very important to us. So this will come back to planning board, you know, as a technical site plan. So we wanted to provide the applicant a little bit more options to choose from of those and which one is going to be work best once we see the plans. But that the key thing is we, we want to make sure the buffers is uh, very adequate to the adjoining residential properties. And can I say that we'd like to keep those three options open for when we get the project fully engineered so we figure out how it fits and which one works best for us. But I think all three of those are effective buffers in this context. So hopefully you guys will allow us that flexibility as the staff is recommended. So if we're looking at the properties to the north because you, you have the residential to the north and to the east, could we then make a motion if we decided to make a motion to approve limiting to, on the north and the east, the buffer to either include D or E and exclude F, so that it's either a wall or a fence, only on the north and the east, eastern side? That's your Mr. special Tyner. exception. You're, you can make special conditions. You, you can. Remember, on the north, there's actually an access way um, that's really narrow. Well, I say really narrow, but you can't build a house there, so keep that in mind. Thank you. Good. You guys done with me? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, any other questions from the board before we go to public hearing? None? All right. This is a public hearing. Any member of the public that wishes to address the board on this item, please come forward, state your name and address for the record. You'll have three minutes. Does anyone wish to address the board? Seeing none, we will close the public hearing. Come back to the board. Are there any other questions of the staff or applicant? I guess maybe procedurally, just that these exceptions, we do them all the time, and it seems like kind of silly. So <laughs> what, what is the, the path to get off that road? Like, would we? Well, let me, let me explain. Um, you know, this is a special exception. It's different than a variance, okay? A variance, as you know, is a deviation from the code, right? You know, so if you have a setback of 20 feet and someone wants to have it at 18 feet, then they would come to planning board for a variance and there's specific criteria that um, is, a, you know, that you, you would decide on uh, based on the criteria. A special exception is, it, it is a permitted land use within our land development code, okay? It is, under our list of uses that we have, like under commercial, you would have a little S there. An S symbolizes special exception. So basically, it is, a, it is a use by right, okay, that you can have in there, but it requires a special exception because it's one of those uses, like a storage facility, for example, or, you know, a, a gas station um, next to, um, uh, a single-family neighborhood you know so there are certain uses that it's allowed outright but you're able to add conditions to help make that use more compatible in nature just like there was a suggestion today hey you know the buffer could we do this as a suggestion so it is a use by right 
um, in order to I, I, all Mr. All municipalities and probably counties that I know of, they call them something different. But on the most part, you do have uses that can, uh, it's okay in this, in this district, but you know, there may be an adjoining abutting property that maybe we need to add special conditions to make it a little bit more compatible. So it's ingrained in our land development code, unlike a variance. Okay, I hope that helps. Yeah, yeah it does, thank you. All right. Any other questions from the board? I have one other comment, Go ahead. and that is, um, and like I said, maybe it is uh, <clears throat> applicable at the time of site plan review, but <clears throat> one thing that we looked at on, on another prob, uh, project was uh, light pollution. You know, you got somebody living to the east of this, so um, I think they need to be real cognizant of any kind of lighting and then limiting the hours of that lighting, or at least not have light facing the front yard of that home. Yeah, they, they're required to give a lighting plan with the technical um, site plan, and I don't know all the regulations, but I know, that, yeah, that it's regulated. And we could also address that with the board when it comes back. Perfect. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? All right, the staff has the recommendation up. Uh, the chair will now entertain a motion. Any member can move to approve or approve with conditions or second the motion, even if the member intends to vote against the motion. Motion is phrased a motion to approve simply to get the board to the yes or no vote. So is there a motion? I'll make a motion. I make a motion to approve application number 5293 special exception to allow many warehouses, office storage, and self-storage in the COM2 zoning district subject to the eight conditions that were outlined by staff in addition to um, on the north and east side of the on the north and east side, the buffer zone be limited to D or E as an option. And your motion includes the fact that it's consistent with the comp plan and land development code? Yes. Okay. Is there a second? All right, there's a motion and a second. Irene, would you call the roll? Mr. Lemon? Yes. Mr. Albano? Yes. Ms. Nicholson? Yes. Mr. Hilton? Yes. Mrs. Lucas? Yes. Ms. Shank? Yes. Mr. Smith. Yes. The motion carries seven to zero. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. All right, we'll move to item three, which is presentation on quasi-judicial and sunshine law training. Thank you. You know, um, we kind of had a uh, only one item tonight, so um, it might not be that way for for a while, right? Because we're really busy. So. We're really, surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I really wanted to take the opportunity. It was a while um, since Katie had done a little bit of training, and then we have you know some new members as well. So I thought it would be beneficial to take an opportunity of only having one item tonight and maybe doing some training. So. Did we do something wrong, Katie? Because I remember the last time we got <laughs> training, it was because we did this. <laughs> Well, I promise everyone's pretty much heard this before, so if we can get a question, questions coming from y'all, that would be really helpful. Um, I know it's sometimes helpful to go back and remind ourselves about some of the basic principles, but I promise you I will not read from the PowerPoints. It won't be death by PowerPoint. Um, so the first thing is... As always, we talk about quasi-judicial being policy application and legislative being policy formation. 
So when we, when we have an ordinance that we're considering a change to the code, then we can think about anything at all under the sun in contemplating whether we want to recommend that ordinance to the council or not. Whereas when we're looking at a particular quasi-judicial matter, then we have to put on our judge's hat, and it's a very different experience. We don't do administrative. That's more council. But so cities are unique in that cities and counties that they, they just have one body that does it all, right? So in the federal government, we're used to the separation of powers and all that. But in, in cities, I'm just going to say cities, but you know I mean counties too, that um, <clears throat> they just have everything. So you basically have to take one hat off and put a different hat on. And that's how council handles all their different duties. But we have the same thing here at Planning Board where we have legislative and then we have what are quasi-judicial. Um, and you know, we all have to go back and look this up from time to time when we're talking about something, for example, like a plat. And we say, what are we doing with the plat? Because a plat is something where it's almost like if you meet the check boxes, then the plat should be approved. It's not like y'all are going to pick apart a plat and say, well, this easement isn't written correctly, or this lot is not, you know, those things are, are just not part of the inquiry. However, it's still a quasi-judicial matter. It's still the application of the code to a particular set of facts. So um, the, when we look at our quasi-judicial matters, when we look at our special exceptions, our variances, our small Prop, one property rezoning, then we're trying to um, figure out what did the policymakers tell us to do. So we're not trying to figure out, as we've talked about before, what do I think is a good idea, what seems fair in this situation. That may come into play, and all of your opinions are important on that, but the main question is what did our policymakers tell us through the code that they want to do in this situation. So you're applying the code, and you're one of um, one of those special boards that that does that. And you look at um, all these various matters, which are quasi-judicial, and. As you know, we don't have a very rigid, formalistic, like you, you know, as in a courtroom. We're not having constant objection, and you know, the 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 chair is not constantly ruling on matters of evidence and what comes in and what doesn't come in. We're pretty loose on that. So, if we have a bunch of public come up to talk about, we think the traffic is going to increase with this use. We don't say, you know, the developer isn't there going, objection, you know, and, and strike that from the record. That kind of thing would be very chilling for the citizens if we had that kind of um, atmosphere. So we try to keep it very loose, and the courts have said that's fine. Most of the rules of evidence don't apply. And also, you as a board, if someone came up and said, this, this ordinance is wrong, this code is unconstitutional, you can't rule on that. You don't have the authority to do that. Only the judiciary, the real judiciary, has the authority to rule on that. So that's kind of a limitation. 
that you have, you have to deal with what we have in our code book. And basically, it all comes down to notice and opportunity to be heard. And that can involve letting people, especially the, the applicant, letting the applicant speak a fairly long time. They might, you know, we're seeing a little more formality where they're coming up with the PowerPoint presentations and they're wanting to maybe bring out their experts because they can get in hot water if they're too relaxed about it and they just have the attorney saying, oh yeah, we've met concurrency and we've met all your code requirements, don't worry about it. You know, there's some experts in the audience, but they're, they're good. So they're getting a little more to where they'll bring up those experts to give you that evidence directly, which is helpful. And, and you know, obviously we're not gonna spend eight hours on every single hearing, so we are going to expect some summary of it. Um, so, you know, we don't see this very often, but the developers do have the ability to cross-examine citizens even. And when that has happened, which it's only in my thousands of years, <laughs> seems like practice, it's only happened a few times. And when we've done it, we've tried not to put the light on the citizen and, you know, make it like this big courtroom proceeding. We've had the developer ask questions give submit questions, say, to the chair, and then the chair would ask the citizen. Once again, we're trying to give due process without creating a very formalistic courtroom atmosphere. But um, the one thing that a party, a developer, an applicant, does have the right to know is why did you decide the way you did? And <clears throat> we don't want everybody, we don't want to go down the row and everybody says, well, I'm voting no because da 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 but if, if you are going, against, especially if you're going against staff recommendation, it can be very helpful to staff to know what is it, what is the evidence that you're, that you're relying on, especially um, what expert testimony you're relying on, because often we don't have that. We just have expert testimony by staff. We don't necessarily have expert testimony on the, the, the side that staff is not proposing. So that is where it can be helpful for the board to speak up and give that. Please interrupt any time if I say something that um, you're questioning. So as a matter of fact, now there is state law, as you all probably know, requiring that if the decision is a no or a yes, if you are the final board, then the staff must provide the reason to the applicant as to why the decision went the way it did. And that's cited here. So that's, that's a very important um, right now that applicants have. Just as a matter of interest, oh, please, Sandra. Yes, so if we are, for example, making a no um, recommendation, call, should the person that's making the no motion state why they are not recommending approval? If the no goes against what staff <coughs> recommended, right. yes. Okay. That, that is definitely helpful because otherwise when staff writes that letter saying no, they're going to have to come through the record and see, oh, could it have been this or that. Now I will give you one other caution about that, and that is we don't want if, if your decision ever gets to court, we don't want the judge to say, oh, 
Clint said that he, he, he made his decision based on you know, the, the buffer, and that must be why everybody voted that way. We want to be sure that your motion references in general, you know, I'm basing it on the staff report, testimony, not just one particular thing because courts will seize on that. So it's always helpful when you're more general, but definitely um, helpful to staff in particular to know, and in fairness to the applicant. So, could, uh, excuse me, if I could expand on that. Please. So we had a, we had a scenario, I think it's three months ago now, maybe four. There was a, um, a, a variance that came across the yes. board. And uh, the staff recommended that we approve it, and we recommended a denial. Correct. So my question is, one thing, and I've looked at the Land Development Code in that, and I'm not really sure what the guidelines are for <coughs> granting or not granting variances. I always thought it was one of the criteria was a hardship. So That's correct. Um, so I don't know if you can maybe expand on how variances work. So what happened was this house was set um, too close to the to this front setback. We can't actually talk about the specifics of that because it's a violation of due process to talk about a situation that might actually come back before oh. you. But in general terms, you know, staff does a really good job in the staff report of laying out the criteria for the specific decision. And as you know, the variance um, decision is based on, what is it, six or seven criteria? There's five. Five criteria. Um, so, you, you know, if you can go down that list, and staff had recommended yes, go down that list and see which one you think is a no. Um, and and then if the person that voted no could say, I'm voting no because I don't see that there is a, a I think this was a self-created hardship, or I don't see there was any hardship, then that can be very helpful. And also giving staff an idea of what the basis is in order to maybe provide more information on that particular element of the proof. But, but variance in particular is very challenging because, you know, the case law says you only grant a variance in order to prevent a taking. And we know that, you know, the variances are generally granted in more situations than that. So it's very challenging in working with those criteria and whether something's self-created and whether there's some irregularity with the lot. That's a very difficult difficult one so can, can I add a little bit please to that? Um, you know in staff uh, we've had a long long policy of because um, we really want to be consistent right so in order for staff to make a recommendation of approval we would we would they would have to meet all five criteria for us to make a, a recommendation of approval and there have you know to, to be quite frank there are some really uh, you know, it's your decision, but, you know, that's our policy. So you do, I, I mean, they do have leeway on certain circumstances if, you know, if you think they, they meet it and we don't, you know, it doesn't hurt our feelings, but I'm just telling you, that is our policy. You know, if you meet four, but you don't meet one because of some reason, we take a really conservative approach to that. And But, you know, planning board does have, you do make the final decision on that. Um, and I can tell you that, 
you know, um, that I remember, I, I could probably count on this hand how many that we have done that met all five criteria. We rarely, rarely do that, you know. So that's how kind of our practice has been, just to let you know. Okay, so I just wanted to add as a matter of interest that when we do get an appeal of a decision by the city council, that the court does not tell the city what they should have done. So they don't say, you should have granted that variance or you should have granted that rezoning. They'll simply say, you don't meet all the, the you didn't meet all the requirements that, um, which I'll bring up in a second here. Um, that's for if it was an ordinance that someone challenged. But where it's a quasi-judicial decision, the court just looks at those things and they say yes or no to that. Was there due process? Was there notice and a hearing? And did the person, was a person allowed to cross-examine if they wanted to? Was there enough evidence to support the decision? And were the essential requirements of law followed? So if, so a lot of times you don't see appeals of denials at city level because they know it's just going to be bounced back. So in other words, the court's just going to say something wasn't right, send it back. And so the applicant very often realizes they just need to negotiate. So that's why it, usually we don't have things going to court anymore. And just a little more elaboration on due process. It's really hard to explain what is competent substantial evidence. It is what it is. Um, and uh, so I want to point out one thing that is so important about, about boards. And that is that you all see the people talking. And when it gets to be in a transcript that a court is looking at, they can't possibly get the flavor if you don't have the body language of the person and how what their tone of voice is and do they seem believable. So that's why um, you have discretion to decide on what is competent substantial evidence because you know more than a court would know. You go back to the swearing in. Oh I, yeah, I yeah. A, Let's. Do, I'm New glad Sur you brought that up. I was in New Smyrna six months ago for a project, and I had to present, and um, it was before the city of New Smyrna Beach, um, and not only did I have to be sworn in, but basically all the members of the audience that wished to speak That's there right. had to be sworn in. Yeah, I'm actually a special magistrate <coughs> for New Smyrna Beach for code enforcement, and you know, with code enforcement, it's automatic. We always swear in, but this was a like a land it's use planning board. Yeah, planning board. So we could do that. Um, my philosophy is always the more relaxed, the better. And I know that has been the philosophy of most of the chairs and mayors and so forth that I've dealt with. But um, it does, it's an, in, it's an indicator that you are serious and that you have a quasi-judicial matter and that nobody should be getting up here that isn't prepared to be absolutely honest with us. So, you know, it's, it's kind of up to the particular city to decide how they handle that. Um, I don't know how you felt about it. Did you feel like it was sort well, of... it was just weird because I was on a planning board and all of a sudden I go to another planning board meeting and they do it different. and it's like, wow, that's interesting. I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. So yeah. That's why if we have a court reporter here, if we know that something is going to be very, very controversial, then I absolutely will 
not only ask that everyone be sworn in that's going to speak, but also make sure that staff has put their credentials on the record. There's a lot that you do when you know that there might be a transcript made and it might yeah, go to... We had that we had, yes. And we... Uh, Correct. Yeah. We uh, started that process at City Council, actually, um, of swearing in. And it started yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and the process was... But um, if the applicant um, swear in, unless the applicant relinquishes—that's right, you were there. Yeah, yeah. relinquish the requirement. In that case of one of our items, they did. So I think waive is the right term. Waive is the right term, and and actually that's an yeah. interesting point because the applicant can waive almost every right that they have. So um, you know that that's something that I've done too where we have we know it's a controversial matter I say do you want to waive swearing in or how do you feel about that um, so you know if if we want to start doing that we I can we can talk about know, it just but <laughs> oh okay now I got to tell the truth okay yeah, yeah it's just crazy right you know I mean it's just yeah uh, you had to be honest <laughs> so Here's the um, bullet point down there about popularity polls. You all know this, but obviously, you know, if the entire audience has a yellow shirt on, we can't change our way of doing business. We have to go by what the expert testimony says. Um, and then testimony of the attorneys is not evidence, even though they seem to think it is. And um, then we get into the citizens, what they can what is competent for them to say what isn't always always an issue lots of case law on that and essential requirements law so ex parte we don't really have much issue with that most of y'all don't speak with the applicant and that's a good idea just avoid it because otherwise we have all this case law to talk about um, but if you do have conversation with an applicant or you go to the site or something please disclose that as early as possible in the proceeding um, and then don't ever testify when you're up here on the board saying you know I, d I looked at the site and I think it's a good site for this because I saw that there was proper drainage or whatever you know that's that's not um, you wouldn't want a judge in your case testifying as to the facts about the case you want him to stay impartial can I ask you about that? Please. What if there's a question and you know the answer, and and nobody else does? <laughs> can you can you state that, or should you just keep your mouth shut? Um, because some of us have been around a long, long time. That's right. In this that's community, right. and we might know the answer to something that somebody's discussing that that maybe nobody else does. Yeah, I think that is not quite the same as saying. I know this site and I can tell you that this should be granted, you know, and sort of acting like a witness. I think that's more just historical background information, so <laughs> I know the temptation there. Um, I think along with that, Kate, just real please. quick, a, an old story is that um, years ago, years ago, it was uh, we had a, a, a planning board member and there was a project and I know their attorney came to me um, because this planning board member ha it hasn't been, it, it wasn't heard yet by the planning board, but this person was at a frequent local place, right? And was touting how, um, yeah, I'm going to deny this. I mean, 
this is we can't I, and the attorney happened to hear the attorney who was part of the project team hurt him and it it was not good okay yeah. and this person this attorney was gonna like let's see, you know we'll see what happens but you know that you just want to be real careful too I mean you're out in public and you know just remember you know you're you're a planning board member and something coming up and you know, I just want to be real careful and, you know if they're if you're at a party somewhere and somebody's talking about a project you, you just walk away that's right <laughs> you know, that's right don't involve yourself in that because that's that's how you get in trouble that's it that's it and and if there have been cases where somebody's been accused of bias and it's it's you know contaminated the entire vote according to the court that one person for example in the case i'm thinking of a council member was campaigning against a particular i think it was a I don't know, rezoning or something, and going around talking to everybody about it and all that. And so the court said, look, she was biased, so throw the, the, throw the whole vote out. So in closing, I just want to point to the fact that courts are hostile to citizen boards. They feel like they're not professional. They're, they're too cozy with the city. And one, one um, one court said, yeah, sometimes they're kangaroo courts. Uh, and so we do have to try to keep as professional. You all are, are great, but you know, obviously sometimes <laughs> things get a little um, unprofessional. And once again, here's another statement. I think I gave this out to you all not too long ago, just another little list of what's competent substantial, and then the rezoning standard, always good to look at um, because we have burden shifting with a couple of things that you all consider, one being rezoning, one being special exception, where if they, even plats, everything, if the applicant meets the code, then the, the court actually said the burden shifts to the board to find the evidence that they shouldn't get what they're asking for. So in this case, that what is the evidence that maintaining the existing zoning is in the public interest? So it's an interesting idea that um, I guess my time is time's up. out. Uh, yeah. about that. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting idea that the board has to then find that evidence, come up with it. And we Kate, talked about I'm, I'm these. I'm confused uh, on that one. Pardon? I don't know about everybody else, but I didn't. I didn't get that one. What, what? You, you didn't understand what me? I was saying? Yeah, I didn't understand that. So, in case law, the courts say that an applicant has to meet the requirements of the code, and if they do, and that's usually determined by staff, you know, we get a staff report, and it tells us if they meet it, if they meet the requirements for the rezoning, for example, then the board has to say, okay, what is our evidence why they shouldn't be rezoned? what is the public interest in having this particular land stay office if they're seeking residential, that kind of thing. So they're putting the burden, the court is putting the burden on the board to okay. give that evidence, to, per, to look through the record and see what is the evidence to support that. And it's the same like with a special exception. If they meet the requirements, then it's up to the board. It's the burden on the board 
to find a reason why they sh that it's against the public interest for that special exception to be allowed. And then we went over a bunch of these cases before, um, which are all, which all found that the uh, decision was incorrect, and we know there's plenty that where it was upheld. But here are some decisions, and you all just can read these over um, at your leisure. And I, I've already talked about them with you all, um, rezonings and so forth. <coughs> and then if you could put yeah, so this. I have a question on zoning then. Why yeah. bother zoning something when, when the applicant has the right to rezone it? So if it's zoned commercial but he wants to change it, there's really not many things that we can go at where, well, where, we, can't, <coughs> where we can't deny it. Well, if you have a, um expert testimony that it, they don't meet the requirements in the code, then you're, you're good. So, for example, you get a staff report and they recommend denial, then you've got a solid basis. Right. But two slides ago, it talks about where the property owner has the right to, to rezone his property. Um, Only if he meets the code requirements, which are, you know, kind of general. So that's where the expert testimony can bolster your decision so that you know that they've met these requirements per a planning expert. So are these the decisions coming up here creating like a standard for measuring public interest or, or how does that get weighed besides just a your guess is as good as mine. I mean, it, there just has to be something, not just citizens getting up and saying it's going to create a lot of traffic. Maybe the citizens get up and say, this is totally out of character with the neighborhood. You know, and uh, presumably you have a comp plan designation that fits with the zoning that he's seeking. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So they're not seeking a comp plan change and a zoning change. In that case, you can really shut it down because the comp plan change is legislative. So you can just say no, out of here, right. right? But once they have the comp plan designation that fits with the zoning that they're seeking, then you really need to have, um, what was your question again? <laughs> <laughs> well, just kidding. Like, you know, you see these things that say it's uh, consistent with the public interest. And oh, so, the public and so interest. I wonder, like, how do we measure? So let's say the, the staff's um, report is recommending the rezoning, but you believe that you've heard enough that there's something not right about this. It's not in the public interest. So maybe you have some lay testimony. I mean, you probably don't have um, an expert that's gotten up. I'm an expert planner, and I want to tell you that know your criteria on you know, compatible with the neighbor, neighboring um, properties is, is not met. You probably don't have that, right? right? So you're going to have to look for something else. And if you have lay testimony about compatibility, that is one thing that you can rely on. So it, it's difficult. Right. Hey, Katie, along with that, because I've always wondered, y'all don't mind me asking questions, too. No, 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 So, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I've, I've heard throughout the years, and really people have said it, but how much does, like, um, 
it way where someone wants to do a comp plan change and the person who resided next to that property says, wow, I, I bought this property because I relied upon that 30-year plan the city had. You know, this is Greenbelt and now you're doing it residential and I wouldn't have bought my property about it. How much does that weigh as far as? Yeah, so if you're talking about comp plan, then yeah, comp plan. you can weigh anything you want, basically, other than a very arbitrary, like, you know, I don't like the way the applicant spoke or something ridiculous. But if you're weighing anything like, oh, the neighbor next door doesn't like the comp plan change, or, I mean, comp plan, you are mighty and strong. You can say, what it is you agree with and what you disagree with based on a whole host of factors, including what the neighbor said. But when you get into quasi-judicial, the issue becomes if this did, let's say you made a decision to grant the rezoning against what the neighbor wanted, and then the neighbor wants to appeal that and says you didn't follow your code, well, the neighbor has to show that they are entitled to bring a case. In other words, they have standing. You're all probably familiar with standing. Do they have the right to bring the case? So they have to be affected by the decision. So that's where, when you're weighing the factor of the neighbor, you know, you might look at one of the standards for rezoning is compatibility or whatever. What's the standard like? Um, is it compatible? Whatever. Time. Anyway, it's similar to like a compatibility issue. So you might look at what the neighbor says on that issue because that is something we can take lay testimony <clears throat> on. But let's say you get somebody 10 miles away from that property and they say it isn't compatible, I don't agree with this. If they appeal that, the court's probably going to say, you don't have really a vested interest in this property. You're too far away. It's not really affecting you. So we're not going to let you even bring an appeal. So that's where it comes in, in in terms of standing. So basically, the close by neighbors, the ones that you give the notice to, are the ones that the courts will generally hear from and be willing to let have a voice in the decision on what this owner does. But remember, we're in Florida. And this is private property rights all the way. So generally, what the private property owner wants to do with their property, if it's conceivable in the code, will be allowed except for complaint changes. I'm sorry, Sybil. Who bears the cost of the appeal if that homeowner says, this is going to interfere with my understanding of how this property or the adjacent land would be used? That owner has to pay. And if. If then the court decides yes, you know, you're right. Then, then they're, Do yeah. they recoup that cost? No, no. Oh, that is. No, and that's why you don't people see. People don't have the financial wherewithal to bring a suit. Right. That it really doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. Exactly, exactly. Can I ask a question? Please. I'm a new guy. Like HOAs and, and community developments that are against a comp plan, like a piece of land that was never supposed to be built on, they can gather together and argue the comp plan. Is, and that makes it stronger for that 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, the more you have that kind of organization. And I should point out, you know, you were talking about appeals. Well, there's another type of action they can bring where they say this decision was inconsistent with the comp plan. And that action is a statutory action. And you can actually recoup your attorney's fees if you prevail. So, but, you know, you've got to spend a lot of money before you get there. And one homeowner probably wouldn't, if it was like one homeowner in an area, they don't stand a chance. They don't stand a chance. Right. And remember, too, that at least with an appeal, you're not going to get the court acting as a zoning board and saying, no, this should not be rezoned. They're going to say, something went wrong, go back and do it again. So people don't really use that mechanism. I'm just a little confused. Uh, only uh, I'm thinking of an incident in New Jersey, in Atlantic City, when there was a proposal to, bring, to build one of the big hotels, and a property owner on Atlantic Avenue said they did not want to sell their property. They yes. Had, if you're familiar with that story. That is, absolutely. Ultimate, ultimately, they built up and over and around her. Right, right, the little pink house. Yeah, so that's, that's a totally different type of issue. If, if your property, if, if the, the, the government wants to take your property, then yes, you get full compensation and your attorney's fees and your expert fees, everything paid. So that's a whole different can of worms than having a property next to you rezoned. Well, this is, what I'm saying is that she didn't, I don't know whether you'd call it lose or win, but they were not able to secure her property. Right. And so the developer built the casino all around her. Around her, right. So the house is still there in the middle of all of that. That's right, that's right. She fought them in court. They weren't that's able right. to, yeah. Okay. Seawall, flag the beach. That's right, there's something like that right here. Yeah. So you all know, um, if you don't mind me moving on just quickly, so. Oh, please. Something like Katie. that is, uh, that eminent domain thing, though, yes. isn't that? They just can't take your land no. because it's not government, and they, they only can buy it. And if the homeowner doesn't want to sell it because oh. they're not government. Well, but the government will create opportunity for a developer to buy it. So that in, in Florida, they've kind of shut that down now. Uh, but it used to be right, that the city would buy it and right. then sell it to the mm. developer. So that was the situation there, right. was the city or whoever, county, whatever, were, was going to buy that and then, and then turn it into a, a development selling it. Right. But now we, we can't do that here. So um, you all know that the Sunshine Law is extremely broad. And basically, the plain meaning of the statute um, is not what you might think. Here's how it could be rephrased. That any time that any two of you speak, the public needs to be invited and have notice. And then uh, the exceptions to voting, there is now an exception for um, if you feel that you have some bias in the matter, you can abstain from voting and you won't get in trouble. 
and um, everybody gets to record everything. We had um, one citizen that got up and spoke on every matter and recorded every single time he got up. And he, you know, we can even, they're even allowed to have cameras around, roaming around the city. Um, so you don't have to worry about speaking with staff and you can call upon staff. We don't have to have an agenda item to be able to um, deal with something except quasi-judicial, of course. And there is now embedded in the statutes a right to speak. So basically what I, oh, my philosophy is let everyone speak for pretty much as long as they want unless we have you know, a huge crowd where we have to cut it off. But for quasi-judicial in particular, the courts are going to be very, very strict about making sure that you've allowed everybody sufficient time. That is your parties, particular. Three minutes sufficient time. So if you're talking about the developer, the applicant, I should say, it, it's been found not to be. Right. No, I'm saying public. For the public, yeah, I mean, it's... It just depends because you get into that issue that I was telling you about who's really affected. And we aren't going to have that kind of information on everybody. Like we might know with somebody, oh, you're next door or whatever. So the answer to that question is I would not be strict about it, but I would, I would basically try to keep it to three minutes when you have a big crowd. But you may have situations where it's only logical to extend the time. And I know that's probably not what staff wants to hear or what you want to hear when we have a big crowd. But it, it can save you a lot of time in the, in the end if you err on the side of letting people speak. Yeah, I think we were you know, being consistent with city council. That's what I said. I mean, city council sets those rules pretty much for us. Yeah. As I right. understand it. Right, yeah. but you have, as a chair, you have the ability to, okay, you know, finish up what you're saying kind of thing. I mean, we're not going to cut people off in the middle of a sentence, especially someone that's affected by, um, you know, definitely next door, right in the area or something. Okay, so like an example would be that, you know, the chair would have a discretion would be, let's say it's a very controversial item, right? And you know that you have a group or neighborhood group or hired an attorney and they have their own, you know, they have their attorney or whatever and they want to display some evidence, you know, is that like a circumstance where the chair has the discretion to say? Definitely. If there's an expert witness, you know, that kind of thing, you know, if they've gone to that kind of um, right. expense and so forth that, you know, they're, they're definitely affected by it. They're not just coming out to be naysayers. Are we protected liability-wise in case something does go to court and the planning board gets? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, no. that you might if somebody, I mean, people can do crazy things, right? So they might name you. I don't ever recall a situation where individual board members were named. Um, certainly council members occasionally are named just because people are crazy. But yeah, no, you're protected. But I. Could I add something, though? Because I don't know the answer to this. Except for if you defame someone, you know. I mean, but mostly what you say in here is protected. If you go out there and say things, just because you're a board member doesn't 
obviously mean that you're covered. I, yeah, I was going to give the one example that I did with uh, one member who, who said something, you know, I'm going to vote no, and the attorney, you know, if the attorney was going to sue that person, the city I don't think would protect. I don't know the answer to that, but I wouldn't. No, I would no, what you that say that outside. would be on your own, you know, because you right. didn't I follow guess. the Protocol. Right, what you say outside of here is right. is different. Right. So um, it's easy to miss some of these things. Uh, if you whisper or pass notes, and obviously you wouldn't do that about the matter that's in front of you, but even if it's not, you know, it's just something benign, it can become controversial. If you have a controversial matter, people will pick on things. Um, and so if you get an email to all of you, as you know, that's not a violation, as long as you don't reply. So there's bad sanctions. Um, people have been put in jail uh, for the Sunshine Law violations. And you can cure a violation. And then these are just violations and what happened with them. Um, and I put at the bottom here, sometimes just being seen speaking together can cause someone, not so much at your level, but more at council level, they you know, really have to watch because people do you know, get intense when there's a controversial matter pending. So you really don't have too much to deal with with public records, but if you got an email sent to you from a citizen, or a developer, just make sure that you forwarded it to Irene or to the city clerk. Um, you're not involved with really what's the procedures. Katie, Please. Um, I have received a couple of communications, actually I guess like two of them, from my HOA about announcing about all the homeowners in the HOA should attend a particular meeting. Yes. And maybe there was a letter attached to it that the president was going to submit to the city. Typically, what I've done is I've responded and said, please take me off this email list, and I've Perfect. deleted it. Perfect. Should I have forwarded it on to Irene? I think you should forward everything if you have a okay. question. If you're going, should I or shouldn't I, just go ahead and do it. Um, because the situation that has occurred in other cities is, and I think I've mentioned this to all of you, is that people's laptops have been seized, and the court has gone through your entire laptop. And if you can't get up on the stand, not so much y'all, but uh, council members can get up on the stand and say, I have always forwarded whatever I get from citizens onto the city. If you can say that, then you're good. Probably your laptop's not going to get seized. But we just don't want to go there. Please, Sybil. Yes, I know that I've had that experience and got great uh, advice from Irene and Ray. But in my instance, I handed over those letters unopened. So I'm just Perfect. wondering the distinction between open and unopened. I mean... Don't read it, just turn it over. Which yeah, I did anyway. and that's perfect. That's perfect. But often with an email, it's harder to do. <laughs> so, and, and sometimes you can't tell until you open it if it's city business or not. So, yeah, I mean, the best thing is you don't have to disclose ex parte if you don't read it. Yeah. Okay, so almost done here. That's what I just said there about when in doubt forward it and all kind of nasty penalties here. And then just a little um, 
brief thing on the code of ethics and uh, this is all common sense here but basically don't accept anything of value um, except from relatives and friends obviously and then uh, conflicts and this is there's a lot of opinions from the ethics division that puts more meat on these bones. So please do ask if you have any questions. You can also call the ethics hotline. Thank Anybody? You. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <coughs> That's the last of our business. Uh, Mr. Tyner, is there anything? No, sir. Is, uh, are we going to be busy the next few months since we had a couple yeah, months off? Probably. Probably? Yeah. Okay, that's Looks good. Looks that way. I have one last question before we sure. adjourn. How does that, so, <coughs> if an, so the applicant actually has the right to just bypass us completely and go right to the city council? No. No. no but you even are. if they don't get the answer that they like, they can go to the city council. Well, um, depending on, you know, if they follow the, like you're talking about where you're the board of final, you're the final board. Well, we something? made a recommendation to deny something, but then they went directly to the city council. Yes. We do have an appeal process. There's an appeal process. Yeah. And ours was a recommendation. It wasn't right. a final That was a recommendation. Action, so. But I do want to point out that by statute, you all have a role, a very crucial role, and that has to do with is something consistent with the comp plan or not? Each of the items that you review, you are the protectors of the comp plan, so to speak. And that's by statute. So we couldn't eliminate this board. We have to have the board. Not that we want to eliminate Are there any final questions? Is there a motion to adjourn? I'll make a motion to adjourn. Is there a second? Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 aye.